I want to make a claim this morning, and that is that I believe that each one of us here, that all of us, are pursuing greatness of some kind. Okay? That's the claim I want to make. I believe that all of us are pursuing greatness of some kind. Now, of course, all of us don't necessarily want to be rich or popular or famous. Some of us do. That's okay. We don't all have dreams of grandeur, which are often more like delusions of grandeur. (laughs) I want to be a great professional athlete or a great prime minister. Most of our ambitions are a little bit more modest than that, but we do have ambitions nonetheless. When we're young, most of us seek to become the coolest kid around, right? Through many, many different means, whether our clothes or our friends or our language or whatever, we try to become cool. But becoming, but seeking to become fashionable or popular is seeking a form of greatness. If you're the studious type, you may seek to become a great student in your school with great grades. Once we get into a great into a relationship with someone we really like, we try to become the greatest boyfriend or girlfriend ever. Because after all, your significant other is not going to marry anyone but the best, right? No pressure. <laughs> if and when we get married, we endeavor to become a great spouse. And even if we don't get married, we usually still try to be a great friend in all our social circles. We get married and eventually have kids. And God blesses us, blesses us with kids. We seek to be great parents. We want to be, we want our kids to be on the playground saying, my dad is better than your dad. <laughs> or, my mom is awesome. Now, your mom... <laughs> I won't complete the joke. (laughs) Meanwhile, at our jobs, we try to become great employees because we know that being a great worker is usually accompanied by raises or promotions or other great things that come along. There are many other things we seek. A great house, great retirement, be a great grandparent. No matter what stage of life we're at, we strive to be great in different ways and for different reasons, but we want to be great at something. Inherently, the ambition towards greatness is not wrong, okay? But it is so easily corrupted, just like Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. The problem is not with the ambitions we have. The problem is when it becomes selfish ambition. Scripture often speaks of selfish ambition. And when we seek to be great just for the sake of being great, or just for our own sake, or for our own good, or for our own benefits. That's when our ambitions go astray. As humans, we should have ambition, but it should should be ambition for the right things. It should be a holy ambition, a selfless ambition, a a God-oriented ambition. We should seek to be great, but only great in God's eyes. Not in our own eyes or not in other people's eyes. So what is what is this holy ambition? What is this greatness that we should pursue? What does it mean to be great in God's eyes? How does God define or measure someone's greatness? In answering these questions, 
We're going to answer some of the deepest questions in life, really. What should our lives center on? What should we actually be pursuing with our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength? In today's passage from Scripture, Jesus is going to tell us in no uncertain terms how to become truly great. He's going to tell us how to achieve greatness in a way that should affect every area of our lives, in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our churches, and everywhere in between. Lately, we've been studying the life of Jesus together from the Gospel of Luke. And today, we're going to see once again how followers of Jesus, like us, are to follow Jesus, and how we as followers of Jesus can actually become great. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll be beginning in verse 43. Luke 9, 43. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take one in the pew in front of you, and it will be on page 867. 867. As you flip there and find your spot in Scripture, we're going to begin like we begin every week, once again by praying for our time in God's Word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes. If we have not seen you before as our Savior, we pray that we would be, that would become so obvious today that we need you. We pray that you would be glorified in this time, and you'd be speaking to each one of our hearts. Help us that are already followers of you to know what it means to become better, to become greater followers of you. Please speak to us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to catch you up to where we are, okay? Earlier in Luke chapter 9... Jesus took three of his disciples up Mount Hermon, where his appearance was gloriously transformed in front of his disciples. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Just a crazy, dramatic experience that Jesus did for his disciples. And it revealed to the disciples that Jesus was far more than they had ever imagined before. He was incredible and glorious and beautiful. And after that, they came down the mountain... And Jesus' majesty was again displayed, but in a very different way. Very, uh, his everyday ministry way. He, as he healed a demon-possessed epileptic boy. You read that about that last weekend. As people ended, they were just astonished by majesty that Jesus had. And that's where he ended. Great, happy ending. We're just going to read the last couple of verses we read last week, starting in verse 42. It says this, while he was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And it says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. But we stopped right in the middle of that verse, didn't we? Verse 43 continues, and, and look at how it continues. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing... Jesus said to his disciples, okay, wait, let's stop right there, okay? They were all astonished by Jesus, marveling at everything he did, but, but, okay, something was wrong here. There was some kind of tension. Not all was happy in this situation. Read with me again, verse 43, continuing into verse 44. It says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing... Jesus said to his disciples, 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, that's a simplified way of saying that he would soon be arrested and killed. He would be delivered in the sense of a criminal being delivered to prison, court. And those hands of men he's speaking about would beat and whip and nail him to a cross. He had just said something very similar a few passages before this. In verse 22 of chapter 9, he said this, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But here, later in the chapter, verse 44, it seems like a pretty bizarre time for Jesus to bring up the topic of his death again. At one of the pinnacles or the peaks of his popularity, when people were ooing and eyeing over him and being astonished by him. Imagine with me, imagine a professional quarterback in football leads his football team to win the Super Bowl. And in the locker room after the game, everyone's celebrating and champagne is flying everywhere. And he said, hey, hey, pipe down for a second. Enjoy this moment because next year, I'm going to be seriously injured on the field. Or imagine maybe something different. Maybe imagine a concert pianist who trained for years to become one of the best in the world. And after getting to put on a concert in a prestigious concert hall, as the crowd was cheering and applauding and calling for an encore, he was backstage telling his friends, oh, it only goes downhill from here. It's kind of like what Jesus was saying to his disciples. In the disciples' minds, it would have felt like the possibilities for Jesus were endless. That with his kind of power and wisdom and charisma, the sky was the limit. Here in Luke 9, people were wowed by his majesty. They could feel it. This had to be a king standing before them. He would undoubtedly be great. He could easily lead a zealot revolt against Rome and reclaim Palestine from the Jews. He would become king for sure. Maybe beyond that. Maybe Israel, under his rule, would become the next great world power. It would become the new Rome, and he would become emperor of the world. And his friends, well, if they were still with him, they'd become great as well. Right-hand men. And then Jesus blurts out, Soon, I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, and killed. Wah, wah. <laughs> it was definitely a bit of downer news, and, but it was also a reality check to the disciples. Jesus knew that people's expectations for him were getting out of check, getting out of whack a bit, and, and that God had radically different plans for him as the Messiah than they did. And that's why he said this now, right as people were marveling at his majesty, Their expectations are too high. Verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Everything in Jesus' ministry took place under the shadow of the cross. 
cross. The cross was not just another event in the life and times of Jesus. It was the event that all other events were leading up to. And that's why he solemnly told the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. It's a, it's a vivid picture of words go, not going in one ear and out the other. He's like, let them go in and let them stay there. Let them sink in. Think about them. Meditate them. Contemplate them. Remember these. These are important. Like a seed taking root in the ground. It's like Jesus is saying, you're getting too excited about me becoming great. And don't get me wrong, I will be great. Really, I already am great. But my greatness won't be achieved or displayed in the way that you expect. My greatness will be shown through me becoming blessed. It'll be shown in weakness, suffering, humility, humiliation. Me giving of myself. Jesus' greatness would not be seen in people's astonishment, marveling, and praise. It would not be found in a crown, a throne, or an earthly kingdom. Jesus' greatness would be seen in a crown of thorns, a cross, and a spiritual This is the first thing we'll see today about true greatness, about what it means to be truly great. And that's this, that Jesus exemplified true greatness by humbly giving of himself. Jesus exemplified true greatness by humbly giving of himself, even to the point of death. Okay, Jesus was like, get your expectations in check. This is what's coming. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, you might be new to church, or you've never been serious about your faith before, and so you might be confused by this and think, well, what's the big deal about Jesus' death anyway? Okay? That's okay. Let me, let me fill you in a bit. Jesus' death and resurrection are at the center of our faith for a reason. We believe that it's through them that God has solved humanity's greatest issue. See, humanity's biggest problem or biggest issue is not war, not pollution, not global warming or disasters or crime. Humanity's biggest problem is a problem that's in each one of our hearts. It's called sin. God created us to be in perfect relationship with him. But then we rebelled against our creator and broke his laws, and that's sin. We all have done it. Sin has corrupted all of us by nature, so we've all sinned in countless ways. And because of our sin, we're all destined to die physically and eternally. Jesus was God's solution to this monumental problem that we got ourselves into. God sent his son Jesus into the world as a perfect man who fulfilled God's laws. And then Jesus died to pay the penalty for all the sins we've committed. And finally he rose again to conquer over sin and death forever. And now if we will turn to him, turn from our sins, turn to God in faith, God says he'll forgive us. He'll free us from sin, from death, 
from hell restores the relationship that we were meant to have with God. This is something that every human on earth needs to hear and then decide for themselves. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Life and death quite literally hang in the balance. You realize your need for Jesus. The offer is open to you today. You can come to him and he will save you. And that is all because of that one day when he was delivered into the hands of man for us. So come to him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Pledge your life to him. The cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love that he himself would die for us. It is the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption where he won our salvation once and for all. And it is the truest demonstration of Jesus' greatness. Showing greatness by becoming the least. Here in Luke 9, Jesus was essentially telling his disciples that this is how he'd become great one day. He wouldn't be crowned, he'd be crucified, and he would attain glory through the cross. For the disciples, this would have been an entirely foreign concept to them. They didn't have categories for this kind of Messiah. And sure enough, look how this continues. Verse 45, it says, But the disciples did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They just didn't get it. Jesus repeated himself here. Just a couple passages away, but it was still a puzzle to them. Now this verse... We read it, it does not mean that they didn't understand that Jesus could die. They just couldn't comprehend how this could possibly fit in God's plan. That couldn't be God's plan for Jesus. He's too amazing to have that happen to him. Now, we might wonder how in the world the disciples couldn't comprehend this simple prophecy that Jesus was saying. However, some of us don't comprehend the gospel even today. You might hear the words that I'm speaking in, but you don't grasp the importance. The meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection is concealed to you, or concealed from you. Usually because we're blinded by our sin. Or maybe you've heard the gospel for years, but it still hasn't affected You don't understand that it has to be more than a Sunday morning faith. That true discipleship, true following Jesus is a call to die to ourselves and to repent of our sins. Don't be too hard on the disciples until you examine yourself. Verse 45 says the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. They don't know why they were too afraid to ask. It was just for clarification. We know they should have asked. And the same is for us today. If you don't understand something, make sure that you get clarity on it. It's way too important. Ask questions. Find answers. It's too important to to ignore or to not investigate. Maybe the disciples were 
afraid to ask Jesus about it because he'd already talked about it. So they were embarrassed that they hadn't understood it the first time, so you're not going to ask about it now. Their pride stopped them. Or maybe Jesus was so solemn and serious about this that it scared the disciples. And they just secretly hoped that that wasn't God's plan for Jesus. I don't know what exactly was going through the disciples' minds. Maybe nothing. What they did next was certainly mind-numbingly dumb. It's unbelievable what they did next. They got in a stupid, stupid argument. Okay, look at verse 46. It says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, not to air my wife and my dirty laundry, but we got in an amusingly stupid argument recently. <laughs> it was laughable. Okay, we, we both like to think that we know a lot about music. Okay, we're both musicians. We like music a lot. And we got into an argument over what makes a certain line of music into a melody. Okay, what differentiates a melody from a harmony? We started fighting about this. And... We got into this fight over a random kid's song about monkeys and crocodiles. <laughs> we disagreed over when the monkey singing melody was killed by the crocodile. <laughs> and if you think that sounds really stupid, it's because it was. <laughs> but the disciples argument here, I think it was even stupider. Quite possibly the stupidest argument in history. Stupider than all the arguments you see on Duck Dynasty with the Robertson brothers. <laughs> or stupider than what does the fox say? Again, what did they get in a fight about? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now maybe this discussion was something like this. Peter just starts chuckling and, and blurts out, hey, guys, Man, Jesus really told you off back there about not having faith. <laughs> that was crazy. I mean, you couldn't even cast a single demon out of that boy. It's really sad. And then Thomas pipes up, oh, come on, Peter. You know you wouldn't have done any better yourself. And then maybe James sighed. Well, at least some of us were invited up the mountain with Jesus. I mean, obviously, Jesus thinks that some of us are more important than others of us. And then maybe John took his brother's side and said, Yeah, yeah, the three of us, we're going to be great. Just watch, okay? Jesus is obviously setting us aside for some reason. And maybe when he's going to be king, we're going to be his right-hand men, okay? We are going to be great. Then maybe Andrew, Peter's brother, pipes up through clenched teeth. Don't be ridiculous. He took you up on the mountain because you have the most to learn. <laughs> Think about it. I was the one to bring the boy with the bread and fish to Jesus. I mean, I was the one who even brought most of you to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus and I are obviously on the same wavelength here. And on and on and on. We don't know what they were saying, but Somehow they got into this huge blow-up over this issue. And 
They each thought of themselves as greater than the rest, either then or in the future. And given their association with the Messiah, things were obviously going to their heads. Now put yourself in Jesus' shoes. He was exasperated last week. I imagine he'd be way beyond exasperation now. He'd be flabbergasted, just dumbfounded. Like, you've been with me all this time, and you're fighting about what? The next couple verses, Jesus responds to his disciples, and through his response, we'll see the answer to the big question we're asking today. It was basically like Jesus said, okay, you guys want to be great? Fine. I'll show you exactly how you can be great. Same is going to go for us today. That's this. We can become great only by humbly following Jesus' example of true greatness. We can become great only by following Jesus' example of true greatness. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And during this, or maybe shortly after, Luke says this, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts... Okay, stop right there. Disciples couldn't keep their argument secret. Jesus knew what was going on. Maybe they were just whispering in hushed screams behind him. He knew what was happening. Notice that Luke says that he knew the reasoning of their hearts. Pride is not just an issue of a big head. It's an issue of our hearts. They're in our hearts. They were fighting about greatness because their hearts desired to be great. And in our world's eyes, it's no different. In our world's eyes, to be great, you need to have some pride in yourself. And you need to show that pride. The more proud you are, the greater you appear to people around you. Just just take modern professional athletes for an example. But in God's kingdom, it's the exact opposite. Pride is not what makes you great. Humility is what makes you great. Now, I made it sound kind of glamorous by saying we follow Jesus' example of true greatness. That doesn't sound too bad. But what? remember, what was his example of true greatness? Saw that in the first point. It was in his becoming the least for us. Following his example is humbly stooping to serve and love and give of yourself to others. It can be degrading, painful, embarrassing, full of suffering, even dying. That's following. Now look how Jesus illustrates this. He used a a visible illustration, a practical illustration for his disciples. Verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Now we know that 
Jesus loved children. So this passage doesn't surprise us. But to the disciples, this would have been a shocking illustration. Let me explain why. In their day, the rabbis or the teachers of the day generally ignored children entirely. Okay? They didn't want anything to do with them. See, kids under the age of 12 weren't even allowed to be taught the Torah. And it was against the, their rules that they had made up. And so to spend time with kids was seen as a complete waste of time. One rabbinical commentary said that chattering with children would bring a man to ruin. And so, when Jesus here dared to bring a child into their circle, and it would have really shocked the disciples. And then even more surprising, Jesus put his arm around the kid. Another account says that he lifted the child onto his lap. The child was more than welcome to Jesus. And why? Well, this was demonstrating that Jesus was humbly stooping in love. His culture told him that he was way above associating with snotty-nosed kids. But Jesus said that in humility, we're greatly suspended. <clears throat> Took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus said, You want to be great? Then humble yourself. Lower yourself. Love. Give of yourself for others. Stoop down and, and welcome the unwelcome. Love the unlovely. Minister to the young. Now this story is not saying that all Christians need to work in children's ministry, okay? But it is saying that all true Christians should be humble enough to work in kids. Or to work with others who are ignored or unwelcome or forgotten or lonely or put out. So think about this. When the sign-up sheets for kids' ministry went around a few weeks ago, did you think something to the effect of, I can't sign up for that. I'm, I'm above that. Working with kids may mean putting up with snot, tantrums, and craziness. Or it means that I, I have, maybe have to get up early, or maybe I have to miss the service myself, and, and those just aren't sacrifices that I'm willing to make. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. On the other hand, maybe you love kids. You love babies. You love working with kids. Don't let this start to go to your head now. Because I'm confident that there are other areas that you're not willing to serve simply because you think you're above them. Or that maybe the sacrifice of it is too great. Washing toilets. Working in a kitchen. Volunteering at a homeless shelter. 
working with youth in their creativities, going on a difficult missions trip, or serving in the community, whatever. Wherever it is that our pride keeps us from loving others is where the issue lies. Get that? Wherever it is that our pride keeps us from loving others is where our issue lies. You know where greatness is found in churches? It's not found in famous, well-spoken pastors. It's not found in powerful worship leaders. It's not found in these the positions of glory in the church. found in the nurseries where people give up themselves to white baby bums. It's found in kids' classrooms where people sacrifice of their time or their energy or their pride to train children. It's found in hospitals when we give up ourselves to visit those who are hurt or suffering. It's found in small groups when we volunteer to pray for someone else's desperate situation. We pray for it. It's found in homeless shelters and nursing homes and custodian closets and funeral homes. Greatness is found when we humbly give of ourselves to love others and serve them no matter what it costs us. You know, we wonder, well, how are humble positions so great? How does this make sense? And it's because, as Jesus says, when we serve the lowly, we're actually serving him. See that? Verse 48 again. said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, speaking of his father. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So if you love the lesser in Jesus' name, you're actually loving God. Now, that should change our perspective on serving entirely. When we think that when we welcome and accept and love other people, no matter who they are, no matter what it costs us, while on one level we're lowering ourselves, on a whole other level, on a greater level, we're actually being raised up to serve God. Like James says, when we humble ourselves before God, He'll exalt us. Why do you notice... One last thing from this verse before we move on to the final section today. He said this, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now notice, he does not say those who will be great. At some point in the future, although that is true, he says, you humble yourselves, You already are great. These are the people who are great. Humble giving yourself is already greatness. But also notice, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples how to become the greatest. But that's what they were arguing about. Who is the greatest among us? Jesus just tells them how to become great without making any comparisons. Rivalries, comparisons... Judgmentalism, one-upmanship. These are never how we achieve greatness as Christians or as the church. Never achieve greatness this way. So, do you think that you have a better devotional life or prayer life than another believer? 
That's not greatness. You believe that well, you don't sin quite as much as others, so therefore you are better. That's not greatness. As a church, we will never achieve corporate greatness through our things or through our services or what we do. We have, we have a better worship team. Or we have a better youth group. We have a better pastor or a better building or whatever. That's not greatness. We've got to stop playing the comparison game. We can only become great by faithfully following Jesus' example. Serving the lowly, loving the needy, ministering to the young, reaching the lost. Only we are known for these things will we be great in God's eyes. Now Luke includes one final little section here at the end of this passage. Just John answering Jesus in response to what Jesus just said. Verse 49 says this. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Because he does not follow with us. And we don't know why John made this statement here. Maybe he felt convicted by what Jesus said, and so this was a confession. Or maybe he was just confused by what Jesus said, so he wanted some clarification from Jesus. Maybe he just wanted to make sure that they had actually done the right thing. But the fact is, they hadn't. They had blown it big time. Consider this. Why did John say he and the other disciples tried to stop this guy from casting out demons? Because he was doing it all wrong? Because he didn't follow Jesus? Because he hadn't been officially sent out by Jesus? Because he was failing? Because there was just too much extreme risks for anyone ordinary to cast out a demon? None of those reasons. Do you notice why? Verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. They told him to cease and desist because he wasn't following Jesus with them. He wasn't part of the 12 disciples. He wasn't part of their privileged little boys club. It's just more evidence that being around Jesus had gone to the disciples' heads. Disciples thought they were pretty great. Had a pretty privileged, exclusive position. Part of Jesus' inner circle. And they just tried to stop someone else's ministry because he wasn't part of their group. And then Jesus starts talking about, if you want to be great, then you've got to be the least. And John maybe thought, well, Jesus, uh, wait a second, we're still greater than other people at ministry, right? We've at least got that down for us, and we did the right thing by stopping this lesser disciple, right? I don't know how Jesus kept his patience. I would have been like, idiots! <laughs> Are you crazy? Nevertheless, Jesus' response seems fairly controlled, although I do imagine he was pretty frustrated and firm with them. Verse 50, he responds. But Jesus said to him, 
Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. We are not great in and of ourselves. We're not great even because we're Christians. We're not great because of our church, our denomination, our country, or our family. We only become great as we become humble servants following the humble Christ. And these last couple of verses teach us a truth that really serves as a warning to us. And that's this, that when we pridefully think we're great in and of ourselves, we indefensively divide the kingdom. When we think we're great in and of ourselves, like the disciples did here, we often end up indefensively, tragically, really appallingly dividing God's kingdom. Nothing we know about this other guy, the disciples are talking about, tells us that he was doing anything wrong at all. Okay? Nothing tells us that. For all we know, he could have been having a wildly successful ministry in Jesus' name. After all, it says he wasn't just trying to cast out demons. It says he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. That sounds pretty successful. But he was told by the disciples to stop because their egos had gotten too big for their bridges. It was crazy stupid to stop him, but, but pride blinds us all. And we get entitled are feeling entitled, just like they did. Let me say this. Entitlement is the enemy of the gospel. When we feel entitled, we forget grace. And when we forget the grace that God has shown us, we certainly don't want to show any grace to others. We often end up putting others down, discouraging them. Instead of seeing the good that God might be doing through them, in our pride, we hurt others, judging their work or maybe their spiritual life or their ministry unfairly. You aren't doing things right. I know, I know better. Let me, let me show you how. What? You've never read through the Bible in a year before? You're lazy or something? Your church is just too big to really reach people. Or, maybe your church is too small to be effective. Your church is just backwards. That ministry is going to fall flat on its face. You've got everything figured out better over here at Calvary. Why don't you come with me to Sunday? The only reason we feel these ways we either think we're greater than others, or we think we will be greater than others. And when we have pride in ourselves, we tend to distance ourselves from other people. We fence things off. We break things off. We keep things to ourselves. We totally forget that we're not alone, and that we are part of a larger kingdom. It all stems from our pride in ourselves as better, quote-unquote, followers of Christ. 
big reason that Jesus gives to work together is very obvious. It's basically, you're all on the same team. Verse 50, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, if we believe God's word and we follow Jesus and believe in his gospel, then we are on the same team. We're not against each other. We're for each other. Now, this saying does not mean that anyone who doesn't outright oppose Jesus is okay. Jesus, later on in Luke, says, Whoever is not with me is against me. These sayings are not saying opposite things. They're actually saying the same thing. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no neutrality. Either people are for Jesus or they're against him. But if they're for Jesus, if they're for Jesus, then we can't dare to treat them as if they're not. We're in the same army. We have a common enemy. And it's not each other. The message puts verse 50. Jesus says if he's not an enemy... We're all on the journey of trying to become great at something. Great friend or parent or worker or whatever. But I got a question for you. How are you doing at becoming great? How's that going for you? Okay? So-so? Not so great? I suspect that most of us don't feel like we're really succeeding at our ambition. But when it comes to true spiritual greatness, Jesus already succeeded for us. That is so crucial to understand. When it comes to true spiritual greatness, Jesus already succeeded for us. He became the least to show us his greatness and to, in order to allow us to become great by becoming less ourselves. And sometimes we may feel that we're not succeeding, that we're not succeeding spiritually, we're not growing, and that the only thing we're pretty great at is failing. You ever feel that way? John Newton once said something very appropriate for us now. Pretty famous quote, you've probably heard it before. Very simply, he said, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. We are great at sinning. But thank God, Christ is greater at sinning. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saying earlier, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may that be our boast this morning. We are not great in ourselves, but you are great. We thank you for saving us despite all of our sin that you came down into our broken world you forgive us, and you free us, and you redeem us, and you save us. 
Help our lives to be humble offerings before you. Help us to live in humility, to cast down our pride at the foot of the cross. Help us be humbled by your humility for us. We pray these things in Jesus.